Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Today we're speaking with Christian. Christian is 25 and has lived with the rare blood disease hemophilia his entire life. Join us as we discuss the diverse challenges of managing a lifelong condition, advancement in treatment, and finding support within the rare community. Hi, Christian. It's so nice to meet you. Good morning. It's great to meet you. Thanks for agreeing to be interviewed. Of course. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about your experience as a young adult growing up with a rare disease. Um, you were diagnosed uh, at two weeks old, correct? What was your diagnosis? Correct. I was diagnosed with uh, hemophilia A at two weeks old. Um, uh, basically, my parents knew that there was a chance. They didn't know that if they, if they were having a girl or a boy. Um and when they saw I was a boy, they had a uh, excited reaction and then uh, were a little bit concerned because there was a possibility that I would come out with, with hemophilia A, and I did. So with the genetics on he- hemophilia A, it it was likely that you, or there was a possibility you would have, because you were a male? Correct, yeah. There would be a, a 50-50 chance, depending on which, which gene I got, um, and because my grandfather had it, he passed uh, that gene down to my mother, um, and she passed it along to me. So does your mother live with hemophilia as well, or did she just carry? She was just a carrier. Okay. Um, I believe her levels were at the point where she had mild, mild hemophilia, but she was more or less a carrier, yeah. And do you, have you ever had a conversation with them about you know their decision, and did they think about um, how they would address... Uh, the rare disease, or would they have children because of of hemophilia? So the hemophilia didn't stop them from having kids. Um, They always wanted to have kids and um, knew there was a possibility. And um, when it did did happen, they they took it head-on, took it by storm, and... Uh, I feel like once I had my first bleed, they were they were more relieved. If anything, they were. It's like when you fall off the bike the yeah. first time. You know, you're scared for the first one, but then it's okay after that. So yeah, sometimes the fear of what would happen is worse than the actual event. Right? Yeah. Yep. So once they once we got the first bleed out of the way, they I think that they were feeling better about everything hemophilia related and and handling it as as I grew up. Do you know when that first bleed occurred? Uh, yes, I was uh, three or four. Do you remember it at all, or I don't. It... I they they speak about it a lot. I uh, I was walking along a blanket and I got a I had a straw in my mouth and 
Went uh, straight through the mouth, yeah. Oh, ouch. Yeah. I mean, a classic toddler experience. Yeah. But when you have hemophilia, that becomes uh, far more serious, potentially. Yeah, yeah. so they... That was the first time, so they kind of went into action mode and um, and handled it well, and you know it was all set from there. Great. Yeah. When did you first become aware of the condition? I would say probably around five or six. Um, it was around that time that a lot of my friends started playing hockey, just because we're from Massachusetts, so hockey's a <laughs> hockey's a big thing up here. Uh, so I wanted to play hockey and wanted to skate, and it was something my parents told me I couldn't do because of my my diagnosis and right. um, just safety issues. So uh, that's when I really started to understand that there were some limitations and and things that I wouldn't be able to do because of because of the hemophilia. So do you remember that discussion? I mean, do you, do you remember feel any sense of disappointment or understanding why you could or couldn't? The the first time I asked, yeah, uh, I was disappointed and I you know, I wanted to go down to the skating rink and and have some fun with friends, but um I was very persistent and kept on asking and asking and asking. Um so they did let me go skating at least, but uh I never actually got to go out and play hockey with, with some of my friends, which, uh, you know, as you start to grow up and, and understand the, the disease, it's, um, it's understandable. Right. And, uh, but at the time it was, it was a little frustrating and, um, you know, you don't really understand the ramifications. What about alternative activities? Did they, did they, um, offer solutions that that made you feel you know at least like okay at least I get to do this yeah so they were they were great with me growing up um, and letting me be a kid um, so I was able to play baseball and soccer and they they made sure that I had the proper protection to do that so rather than just going out and playing baseball I would have elbow pads and knee pads and shin guards playing baseball um, soccer I would have like a chest protector on and and the, the elbow pads so um, there was a protection in in as I grew up in playing sports um, so yeah my parents really let me still be a kid um, in in the safe way in the way that they felt was felt was right did your friends ask you why you had all these extra pads on yeah yeah kids are curious so um, I don't think they really understood it um, and that's okay. Um, I, I didn't feel like I was like out of place or um, feel like I had too many too many issues with with the hemophilia. So um, yeah, kids asked, but it wasn't anything anything major. It didn't embarrass you. No, no, I was out there. I was having fun. Um, I, I didn't feel any different than anybody else. That's great. Yeah. I think that uh, those are probably some of the trickier years when you feel really different, but it's it's really great that you were like, no, I'm good. Yeah, I'm it, okay. it was fine, and and I was lucky to have uh, a good group of friends who, um, in school, if I was on crutches or wheelchair and we couldn't, you know, run around and um, and play at recess or you know go play after school. Um, they did a great job of just including me in activities and, and not really push me to the side. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you felt supported by your friends. Oh, they were great. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, for the most part, you felt really pretty comfortable with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Was there any part of it that was really difficult growing up? 
Uh, yes. Uh, anytime a bleed would happen and um, you're stuck to the couch or you're you're in the hospital, it it does uh, it did make things difficult just because you do want to be uh, more normal. Um, and you know, it's it's just missing school, missing class. You want to be with your friends. So there were times that there were t- there were tough where. Uh, you didn't want to get take a shot. You didn't want to um, have to go to the hospital, but it happens. So, can you tell us a little bit about what would cause a bleed, like a scratch, or what what would be a serious problem? So, that sort of depends on the severity of of the hemophilia. Um, so, there could be an issue where uh, I just bumped my elbow on the on the table, and it just happened to. To hit in the right spot and um, cause a cause a bleed and cause an issue. So, um, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be an external bleed. It would yeah, be an so internal bleed. Typically, scratches and and cuts are are okay. It might take a little bit longer to stop, but um, overall, the the majority of the bleeding happens internally. So it would be um, if you get somebody falls into you on the train or. Um, you 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 know misstep and fall down the stairs something like that that'll really cause the the big issues. And how do you manage that when it occurs? So uh, it's it's done through a, an infusion, um, and it is a um, just a, a butterfly needle. And uh, we're lucky to live in a in a scientific time where. Um, there's a, a man-made factor of the the factor you're missing. So just mixing that with saline, um, and putting that into a uh, small syringe. Um, and I work on a self-infusion schedule, so I, I do the shots myself. Um, That's great. Yeah. So as a kid, um, were d- did your parents give you? Uh, did you have strict instructions, or did the school have strict instructions? If this happens, then you do this. What were those? Yeah. So my um, growing up, we had we had a nurse come to the house if I had an issue, um, and she would she would do the the infusion for me, um, and then they trained my parents on how to do it. So my parents would then do the the uh, the infusion for me. Is this a preventative infusion? So I, growing up, I was an on-demand uh, patient, so I would only get the infusion when I had an issue. Okay. Um, but as I got to high school, I transitioned into prophylaxis, so I would do um, infusions every other day. Um, and that started with uh, just having more issues and being more active. I Okay. Um, I just needed the, the insurance, basically, of having my levels brought back up. Um, so I worked on a prophylactic, prophylactic schedule, getting infusions every other day. Um, and so my, my parents would do those as I was growing up. And then I began to self-infuse, um, and really handle the, the schedule myself. And how often do you do that now? Now I feel like I'm in a good spot. So I've been doing on demand now. Oh, Um, nice. So can you determine that or do you work with your physicians? I work with my physicians just to make sure that, that they're on board with my schedule and, and get their thoughts as well. So I'll have my uh, my check-ins with them and just make sure that you know, we're on the same page. We have, we have everything lined up. So Christian, I was diagnosed uh, seven years ago. And in that short time, I've seen major advancements in my community in your lifetime since you were diagnosed at two weeks old. Have you seen 
changes in the treatment options for hemophilia? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I I was lucky to be born when I was. Um, so prior to um, prior to the treatment that I grew up receiving, um, treatment was done based on um, plasma derived derived treatment. Um, so people would donate blood, um, and the fact it would be made out of the the plasma that was donated. Right. Um, and in the in the late seventies and early eighties, um, there was a a major um, HIV and AIDS epidemic where um, patients would receive uh, bad tainted blood. Um, that blood would... that had the virus. Correct. Okay. Um, so they would then become infected, uh, and it really uh, shook the community. Um, it caused a lot of discussion. Um, there was um, a the the real face of the of the epidemic was um, was Ryan White, and he um, he passed away from from the um, from the from the virus, um, okay. and uh, it really caused the hemophilia to gain a lot of. The, the community to gain a lot of traction and to um, to really gain a voice, where um, a lot of a lot of key key players in the in the world, such as um, Elton John, was uh, performed at his at his funeral. So um, it it really gained a lot of momentum and discussion because of the the outbreak in the eighties. And do you think that the community did a really good job then creating banding together and creating awareness and demanding change? Yeah, so change was change was uh, became the the big discussion and became the um, real the, the driving force behind a lot of um, a lot of the science that that came in the next couple of years. Um, and they were able to um, to find a way. Uh, not to use human plasma, and uh, they found it in um, in hamster ovaries, where they uh, they would extract the ovaries, and um, it would be ground up into a powder and mixed with saline, where we would uh, we would inject that rather than the plasma. And is that still what occurs now, or has there been further technology so technological changes? Yeah, further, even even more um, even more changes. Uh, now it's just a fully synthetic man-made um, oh, powder okay. that Great. is um, mixed again with saline, but it is um, it's simplified even further, where the doses are smaller, um, and and the infusions are quicker. The needles are smaller. Um, I know that there's a lot on the horizon with with sub-Q treatments and um, and uh, some some gene therapy. So I think there's a lot of opportunity still within our within our disease space that can help. Uh, patients with hemophilia, as well as uh, patients across across diseases. That's a. I can imagine that that kind of fear um, was very impactful to the community because that is the treatment, right? So it's it, when we talk about technological changes. Obviously, it it it's beneficial to all rare disease communities, but for that immediate treatment, that's you know, it's excellent that they were able to find a solution. Do you have friends with hemophilia? Yes, I uh, I have plenty of friends with hemophilia. Um, another reason I'm extremely lucky is the um, the hemophilia community. It's um, it's incredibly close knit, uh, and and everybody involved is truly a blood brother. Um, <laughs> where we either grew up together, 
uh, or if somebody's coming into the community for the first time, we're able to really accept them with open arms. Um, especially being in New England, we have uh, the the New England Hemophilia Association that um, has a lot of events. They have uh, a, a big family camp in the summer that that really brings everybody together. A big, That's great. yeah, a big uh, a big walk where people raise money and and raise funds for. Um, for patients and for uh, for research, so being a part of that has really helped me uh, and and other people cope with um, with living with this because we are able to to ask questions, to be totally honest, to be uh, one big family. So How I, old were you when you went to your first camp? Uh, so I went to my first family camp at fourteen. Um, great. And it was, it was great. And I, I got to meet a lot of new people through that. Um, and I also went to the, uh, the hole in the wall gang camp in Connecticut. Um, that is a camp that Paul Newman started for kids with rare disease. Um, I've heard a lot about that camp. It is an awesome camp. I, I can't, can't tell you how much I like it there. So, um, I went there at 14 as well that, and that really opened my eyes and, uh, opened a lot of doors for the community as well. Do you think that helped shape how you managed your disease as a teenager? I think so, yeah. Just because I got to know a lot more people and knowing more people with the same disease helps to put things in perspective and and make sure that um make sure that we're we're keeping on top of each other. Right, um, you're holding each other accountable. Yeah, 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 and we're able to we're able to communicate um, and and make sure that they're feeling okay, that they're doing the things they need to do to feel okay. Yeah, because um, that's a tough time, really. You know, it's a tough time anyway. As you're going through changes, some kids really don't want to be different, and so to not feel so alone, um, I find in our community is really beneficial for a teen. So I imagine it was for you. Yeah, and. Even if it was just one person or or two people reaching out, and if you were having a, a tough tough month or a tough couple of weeks, somebody would reach out and say, "Hey, you know, not in this alone. Uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. You'll you'll get better." So you're still very young, but have you thought about having kids? Yes, absolutely. And do you think uh, your hemophilia would change your decision to or to not? I don't think so. Um, so my if I were to have a son, my son would not have hemophilia, um, but my daughter would be a carrier. So there would be the chance that my grandson, just like my progression went. Um, so it skips a generation. Yeah. So I they, mean, not skips, but there's a carrier in between. Correct. Right. Okay. Yep. Um, so in my case, my grandfather had it, um, and he passed his gene down to my mother, um, who then gave it on to me. So, right. Um, there is that chance, uh, but that is a 50-50 chance, and um, and I think that's a bridge that we can cross when it comes. Yes. Do you do you wear your awareness bracelet every day? So I wear my medical alert bracelet okay. just in case uh, just right. in case anything happens. Um, so yeah, if somebody asks about that, I I will obviously tell them. Um, but it's it's never really a, a big issue for me to open up about that part of my life because it is such a big part of me and it is so important that um, it's something that overall is pretty unavoidable at the end of the day, but right. um, it's is a major part of me. So so what do you think, do you, what do you think hemophilia has taught you? 
Uh, so far. I mean, it might teach you new things in the future, it, but so Yeah, far. it definitely will teach me more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say growing up, it forces you to really know yourself um, and listen to your body. So since there isn't really a set way to to say that I have a bleed other than to know that I'm feeling... I'm feeling There's not some an swelling. obvious diagnostic. Yeah, like, so I'll, I'll you bump. have to listen. Right, so it's more of listening to my body and saying, uh, "My my ankle feels funny. It really hurts. It's starting to tingle a little bit. Uh, I I can feel like it's starting to swell. So maybe I should infuse here and and just make sure I, I catch myself early." Do you carry um, your infusion? equipment with you at all times? Yes, I'll have some if I'm if I'm going for a long weekend or something, I'll I'll have that in my bag. If I uh if I need to infuse at the office, I have some there. So I have I have um I make sure that the, wherever I am, I'm going to have some some access to to my medicine. Um so You make it, it sound very easy. Was it very easy to learn? It was uh, self-infusing, I, I actually learned how to do on a banana, which was fun. Um, and then I uh, learned how to stick my parents, so I, I was doing the infusions on them. Um, so I think it's it's very hard learning, and then once you learn how to manage, then it becomes just a part of your everyday life. Right. Um, it's something that you just have to do, and um, in the long run, it doesn't take that much time, so... As, as annoying as it can be, it's, it's not bad at all. Uh, before the interview, we were talking about our shared um, interest in, in being on the water. I mean, you as a rower and, and me just as a, a casual kayaker. You were the, a member of the men's rowing team at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. How did you manage the condition while being a Division One athlete? So um, that was a conversation that before I got to Syracuse I had – with the coaching staff, um, and just made sure that they knew what the issue was, um, and they were they were great. They were fine with it. Um, and then I had the same conversation with the um, with the at the uh, athletic trainer when I got there. So um, everybody who needed to be aware was aware. Okay. Did um, you share it with your team? Yes, I shared that with my teammates too, um, and and I let them watch me self-infuse so they, they could get a little bit more comfortable with it. Oh, that's great. Um, that's smart. Yeah. Was that your decision? Did you think of doing that? Uh, yeah. So it's something that people have recommended, um, and and it's, it's uh, while it can be a little bit um, awkward for some people, um, I Those find it nice. Those who are afraid nice. of needles yeah, I, or, right, squeamish. Yeah. Yep. So I find it... Uh, Nice as long as they're okay with it. Um, it's a nice way to to really get to know somebody and and really um, it, it lets them see a little bit more about you. I was the same way with my my sister. She she was a little bit hands off when um, when my parents first learned how to infuse me, um, and then it came to an issue where I was I was self infusing, but uh, my parents were out and I had an, I had a bleed. Um, so my sister had to step up and she. Is she older or younger? She's older. She is older, but um, she hadn't been very involved to that point just because she didn't like to watch. She didn't... Uh, right. Yeah. And um, and so she stepped up and she 
um, it was it's an experience we still talk about and we we still laugh about because <laughs> of how scared she was and how scared I was but um, it was a really great experience for both of us because I think we grew a lot closer because we we shared it together do you feel like she was a little more engaged in understanding the disease after that occurrence uh, or, do you, or did she do somewhat. it and say well that wasn't that was okay but let's not do that again <laughs> Somewhat, a little bit of both, a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I, I think that in rare disease, um, I think that siblings can have a bit of a tough time. Um, I feel like the the spotlight is always on the person with the with the issue, um, and <clears throat> she did a she did a great job growing up and just being supportive and helpful when she could be. Um, and after after she helped me self infuse, I think that she was more uh, comfortable with everything and and was able to um, really enter the community a little bit more. Okay. Um, so so she started to help out with um, with sibling programs and um, making sure that other kids and that didn't have the that didn't have hemophilia were able to enjoy the community and and um, be a part of be a part of everybody as well. You're also um, involved in some other education projects, correct? Or yes. you've done some. You want to tell us a little bit about those? Uh, yeah. So I um, I was a part of Boy Scouts growing up, um, and at the as you reach the the highest rank in Eagle Scout, um, you need to do a, a project um, that needs to stay around for five years. Um, and what I wanted to do was, um, was help educate people on hemophilia. Um, so I, uh, enlisted some help of some friends, um, and we, we put together this video that, um, really explained the whole hemophilia process, the, um, the disease itself, um, and how a person living with hemophilia deals with it on a, on a day-to-day basis. That's great. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was used in, um... In schools around the area where I grew up, um, we gave them to the seventh and eighth grade teachers, so they would uh, show it to kids and um, use it as a part of their curriculum. And how long ago was this? That was eight years ago. I was uh, seventeen or eighteen. Okay. Does it stick around for five years? Do you think? I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's great. That was a few years ago. Are you still involved in the rare community now? Yes, I still am involved in the rare community. And as I mentioned, uh, New England Hemophilia Association, I'm still involved uh, in that community. Um, we at the at this family camp, we um, we teach kids how to self infuse. So um, we'll we'll run training courses and uh, and really let let kids be kids. Yeah. Um, so I am still involved there. That's uh, great. And it's it's a uh, Wonderful community, and uh, again, I'm I'm very thankful for the time and um, the the time that I was born and the and the uh, community I was born into. So I'm yeah. very lucky in that sense. Well, I always say that what I do now is for everyone coming after, and I think that's true for a lot of us who Absolutely. advocate for our rare disease states. Not necessarily for us; it's to make the path for the next ones easier. Absolutely, I agree. That's great, yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. 
feel 